Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. The tech world seems to inspire a certain type of lofty rhetoric, visions of the future often laced with jargon and enthusiasm for new gizmos or new markets that promise change. These days, a lot of Silicon Valley's leaders don't have much in the way of ideas, but they do have a lot of money. So either way, they can push whatever agenda they may have on the rest of us. From promises of abundance delivered by artificial intelligence, to a global community convened on social media platforms, to reimagined economies or even a new world order built on the blockchain, tech manifestos have a way of invading the imaginations of investors and the politicians who rely on their lobbying dollars. This fall, I had the chance to speak to one professor who is leading a course on tech manifestos, inviting his students to dissect the language for what it can tell us about politics and power. I'm Professor Christopher Anderson. I am, as of this fall, a professor of sociology at the University of Milan. And until this time, for the last five years, I have been a professor of media and communication at the University of Leeds. Chris, tell me a little bit about your research practice. What do you look Mm -hmm. at and what is your expertise? So probably the thing that anyone who asked you what my research expertise would say is that I study journalism and I study the news. And I think that's fair and that's true. But the trick is I've never been a journalist. Many people who studied journalism have been or are. So I am interested in journalism. I am interested in news, but I'm mostly interested in news and journalism as an institution that, that makes knowledge, that creates knowledge for how people know things. And in the case of news and journalism, what it does is it makes knowledge about current affairs, current events, and society at large. So I think of studying journalism just like you might study science, or you might study libraries, or you might study sociology, or any institution that makes, that creates knowledge. And so to me, that's that's what I study. Um, and I just so happen to do it through the lens of, of news and, and journalism. Of course, I suppose through that lens, you have a particular interest in not only media, but also uh, media and technology and the role that technology plays uh, in our lives and in the world. And I you know, have, of course, followed your research and uh, followed your writing, uh, but was struck this summer when you tweeted the syllabus of a course that you're teaching uh-huh. this fall yeah. on tech manifestos. So mm-hmm. how did you come to teach an entire course on tech manifestos? I you know, just started this new job, as I said in the bio at the University of Milan. And, you know, being that it's in Italy, and I don't really speak Italian much at all. um, And I have to teach classes in English. um, One of the classes that they gave me was this class with the title, the very sort of meaningless title, I have to say, called Languages of the Media. That was the title of the class, Languages of the Media. And the main thing about this class uh, is that it's taught in English. For the purposes of giving it to me, <laughs> that's its sole distinguishing feature, is that it's one of the few undergrad classes at Milan that's taught in English. But, you know, I kind of decided to take the, the title seriously and start to think about, you know, how might we think about this idea of the relationship between 
between media and language and what is a language of of the media and and also what might be useful for Italian students to learn in ways that will you know both help them think critically and also join you know if they wanted to join industry someday what might also be useful for them because that's the thing about these comm classes right you always have students who want to be critical thinkers but you also have students who who want to get jobs so i thought what is some of the most interesting language about technology and about the media you know, I can't remember if I had been reading a manifesto or if I, you know, why why I thought of this, but I was like, man, what if we did a whole class on on analyzing and reading reading manifestos? Primarily though not only technology manifestos. So we read some other fun ones as well. But what if the centerpiece of the course were these tech manifestos? And then I sort of thought you can learn all sorts of stuff about the media that way. You can learn why why does Mark Zuckerberg feel the need to write a manifesto? Why should he care about needing to put his thoughts, you know, that way? What is it about technology? What is it about the internet? What is it about digital media that leads these billionaire capitalists to want to sound like, you know, um, Karl Marx, uh, you know, and write these things that that sound like radical manifestos? So that was the starting point. From there on, you know, it was sort of off to the races um, and trying to figure out how to teach a class like that. But I guess I do think that understanding the technology manifesto as a thing and as a genre teaches us an incredible amount about the media world we live in. So I see on the syllabus that you do spend a bit of time on the history of tech manifestos. Now, this is a relatively short podcast, but can you give us the kind of canned or Mm. brief history of the tech manifesto? You know, the, the very canned history. And so I'm right in the middle of this now. And we just read John Perry Barlow's um, Declaration of Independence for Cyberspace, um, which, which is partly an, an answer to your question. So I think, you know, look, the history of these tech manifestos is sort of the history of the internet in some way, you know, to be very, very blunt about it. You begin with stuff like the Hacker Manifesto and, you know, these very early very alternative, very, you know, subaltern, very, you know, fringe communities writing manifestos about technology and the role it played in their lives and and what technology did for them. The second stage is, you know, you see people like John Perry Barlow and the Clue Train Manifesto, Dave um, Weinberger, you know, who who were continuing the manifesto style and are still writing it from very much an individualistic perspective. A bit more web, you know, 1.5, 1.0 to 2.0. So it's a bit more tied into the world of commerce and into the world of business than stuff like the Hacker Manifesto was, right? So that's phase two. You know, and then by phase three, you have this sort of genre where this style and this type of rhetoric, you know, is now being, as I said earlier, embraced and repurposed by the heads of these gargantuan potentially very evil, or some people see them as evil companies, right? So that's the history of the internet, right? We go from hackers as these sort of renegade people living on the fringe to, you know, sort of this middle period. John Perry Barlow says, you know, you people of the world have nothing to do with us. Leave us in peace. You'll never regulate us. Don't pass laws about us. There's no reason. You have nothing to do with us. Go away. You know, to Mark Zuckerberg saying, well, the purpose of Facebook is that we want everyone to be in a community uh, you know, and that to me is the history. Is there a kind of, I guess, prehistory that's rooted maybe more in science fiction 
or other, I suppose, utopian sort yeah. of visions of the future? Yeah, I mean, there's always been this really neat relationship between, you know, utopias, sci-fi and technology, um, you know, and I do think that there is there's a total connection there between these, you know, scientific visions of the future and, you know, the need to write a manifesto in order to sort of embody that vision in words. Manifestos are a lot like science fiction in a sense, is that they're, they're calling it to being a world that doesn't exist, but could, right? And what manifestos do that sci-fi doesn't is that, so there's this philosopher, J.L. Austin, who has this idea of something he calls the speech act, And the speech act means if you speak it, it is an act itself. By speaking it, you you do an action. So the traditional idea of this is a wedding, right? You say, I now pronounce you man and wife. And that's more than just words. That creates a legal change in the actual world, right? People are now married by speaking who weren't married before. This relates to manifestos because what manifestos are, they're gigantic speech acts. The idea is if you say it loud enough, And in a particular rhetorical style, you by speaking will make that world, you know, you will create that world through your own speech. And that's a lot like sci-fi. That's, that's, you know, the way that sci-fi and science fiction and utopian writing in general has always operated. So I do think that there is a, you know, there's a connection between the manifesto and the idea of, you know, writing about technology more generally. There's a reason why we have tech manifestos and, and not necessarily, I mean, We have some conservation manifestos, I guess, but not. There is like a radical environmentalist manifesto, but the the genre differences are not quite the same. I see on your syllabus that people are reading, in fact, Mark Zuckerberg. Are Mm -hmm. there some other kind of key manifestos uh, in addition to John Perry Barlow that you're exposing your students to, including some contemporary ones? So they're definitely reading John Perry Barlow and that Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. They're reading Mark Zuckerberg, as you said, the Facebook manifesto. In terms of um, stuff about the internet and about technology, they're reading Dave Weinberger, the Clue Train manifesto. They're also reading something by Sheryl Sandberg, um, actually. They're reading the Lean In manifesto, which is not really about technology, but you know, is, is obviously by the one of the co-founders of, of Facebook. Um, the Lean In Manifesto. They're reading Donna Haraway the same week. And Donna Haraway is famous for writing something called the Cyborg Manifesto, um, which is a, a key document, you know, in sort of third wave feminism saying, you know, Donna Haraway has this great line where she says, you know, she would rather be a cyborg than a goddess, which means, you know, very much part of today's debates about gender and sort of the, the, the social construction of gender. So they're reading that. They're actually reading that the same week they read Sheryl Sandberg. So that should be fun. You know, and then they're reading some, some much more historical ones. So they're reading the Port Huron Statement by Tom Hayden um, and crew. I think that will be fun for them to read. Uh, the Probably the most edgy and avant-garde manifesto they read was by um, this woman, Valerie Solanas. It's called the Scum Manifesto. Uh, the Scum Manifesto is famous because Valerie Solanas is known best for having shot Andy Warhol and not killing him, but but nearly killing him. Um, and then they made a film about this. And this was a sort of key countercultural moment in the 70s. I read the Scum Manifesto fully for the first time um, a couple of weeks ago when I read it with my students. And man, <laughs> it is one of the funniest things I ever read, I gotta say, like, and purposefully so. I mean, there's a lot of debate about whether Valerie Solana sees it meant that thing seriously or as a satire. And it is, 
it is one of the, the funniest laugh out loud pieces of writing I've ever read. So they're discovering, we're discovering all new, all sorts of stuff in here, all sorts of fun, fun stuff for them. Um, and, and again, it's the language is the media, which means that the language is really fun and we can really stop, you know, and enjoy that language. If there is one uh, term or theme that seems to run through the syllabus, at least as, uh, as I see it, it is bullshit. Uh, yeah. So what is the relationship between tech manifestos well, maybe it's maybe it's evident, but what is the relationship between tech manifestos and bullshit? I don't think it is necessarily. I mean, this is something I don't think it is evident necessarily. I mean, if it is, I'm trying to keep a question mark for my students for as long as I can. So for me, the key theme of the class, there are two themes. Number one, are tech manifestos all just bullshit? And two, are political manifestos all just bullshit? And if one is and one isn't, why are there differences? Is it just that we so happen to like the politics of political manifestos and not the politics of tech manifestos, right? It's just that we like what one is saying. So that's not bullshit. And we don't like the other one. So that is bullshit. Are these all just bullshit? That's the underlying theme of the class. And to understand that, we have to have a very, you know, kind of technical definition of bullshit, um, which this guy, uh, Harry Frankfurt, gives us in this amazing little book called On Bullshit, which basically starts by saying there's more bullshit. I'm I'm not going to get the quote exactly right. He basically says, we live in a world where there's more bullshit than ever before. Why? You know, and he wrote this in the 90s. This was well before Trump, well before social media, well before everything else. But he's he's trying to understand why there is so much bullshit. And that requires him first to define it. And the way he defines bullshit is, is amazing. Uh, it's not lying. So that's the thing about bullshit is not lying. It is speech without caring whether you're lying or not, right? So lie is a lie. There's the truth. You say something else knowingly, that's a lie. Bullshit is you speak without caring whether what you say is a lie or the truth. And that's what Harry Frankfurt says is growing. Um, And that, I think, is the thing that's really relevant to our current political situation right now. You know, this question of the relationship between politics and bullshit, you know, and then that gets into all sorts of other questions like, is there more bullshit because of technology? Is there more bullshit because there's social media and we all are just sort of yapping all the time? So we could go a lot of directions with that question. But yes, that is the underlying theme. And the thing I really want my students to think about is, you know, our manifesto is all just just bullshit. And if so, what does that tell us? And if not, why not? It's kind of extraordinary to go back to the Facebook manifesto, um, which, you know, now is what more than five years old and look at some of the language in it and think about, you know, kind of what we've learned about Facebook's actual, um, Mm -hmm. you know, effect on society versus what, you know, Mark Zuckerberg put down and, and what was, you know, at the time, this sort of 5,500 word manifesto, it's almost as if it came out at the beginning of the tech clash. It's like it sort of yeah. marked itself a kind of turning point. <laughs> yeah. But all of these things that he's saying, you know, this idea that Facebook is uh, has a real opportunity to help strengthen communities and the social fabric of our society. Yeah. You know, the idea that what it's doing is helping us come together online as well as offline. This notion of uh, a global community, uh, which mm-hmm. you've you've already kind of called out as bullshit. 
it's really quite an artifact when you think about it as much as much or more so uh, perhaps than than Barlow's yeah. manifesto. I might catch yeah. some guff from this from some listeners. Um, you know, Barlow's manifesto, you know, perhaps um, has had maybe more influence. Um, but in some ways, uh, you know, Zuckerberg himself is far more influential character yeah. than John Perry Barlow. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting to compare the two. Um, I think you're absolutely right about Zuckerberg. Historically, Mark Zuckerberg's manifesto is, is far more important. And I'll explain what I mean. Historically, that I think you're right. That is the wedge. You know, that is either the last hurrah of an original idea of tech and what it could be, or it's the first truly bullshit statement of sort of the tech clash. Either way, it's a hinge moment. And he clearly wrote it knowing what was coming. I don't think he could have written that without some idea of what was about to happen, you know, or from some sort of defensive posture. It wasn't really written, I don't think, as a as a full-fledged, this is the world we want to see. I think there was some element in there where he he kind of knew what was what was on the horizon. And this was almost like a preemptive sort of declaration of, of principle. You know, and, and in terms of a historical document, I think you're right. I think that that's, that's an incredibly important document. And I think it's so badly, it's so hard to read. I mean, I was talking about Solanas being fun to read. It's really, it's just, it's not, it sounds like it was written by Mark Zuckerberg. Let's just leave it at that. Um, but I do think that historically, it's really important. Since you brought up the comparison, I'll just say, you know, I think Barlow's is less historically important because it was less influential, but it, it might be sociologically more important. And what I mean by that is, why would anyone in the world out there at this point still think that Twitter should be a place of free speech? Why in the God's name, after everything we've seen, would you have these characters out there who still think that like, you know, of complete free speech, of complete free speech. That's what I mean. Of complete, you know, people like, Elon Musk and I don't know if Kanye West, what he's talking about, but there are these, there are these characters running around too. On some level, it's not just that they're conservative. It's not just that they want and want to make money. It's not just that they're lying. I do think that people do genuinely believe that we should have these tech spaces of complete and utter free speech. And John Perry Barlow's document is why. That's why. I mean, that's the maybe that didn't cause it, but that represents that belief that we can have these worlds where, you know, we can say whatever we want and there will be no consequences to us. And it not only that, but it will make the world better. I think that document will have a very, you know, to use the words of another tech guru, I think that will have a very long tail, that document. I think that that document will, the ideas of that document will be around for a very, 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 very long time in the way that Zuckerberg's ideas to the degree he has any may, may not be, if that makes sense. So that to me is the distinction. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, that cyber libertarian idea, which is almost totally discredited now by all mainstream commentators, is still a real idea, um, maybe a bad one, but it's a real idea. And I think that it, it, will, it will be back. I said this to my students at the end of the day. I said, you know, 20 years from now, there'll be a backlash to the backlash and you will definitely have this again, this idea. I'm not, I'm not sure we'll have to wait 20 years. I, you mm. know, there, there are yeah. elements of the Californian ideology, you know, kind of running through. I feel like a lot of what we see coming out of pe- people like, uh, oh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Keith Raboy, Raboy, yes. I always mispronounce his name. Yeah. Uh, Peter Thiel, you know, yeah. others like that. 
and they've also, I think, almost taken it to a much darker place in some ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know if you have to wait those decades. No, and it's also an open question. I mean, I hate to get all generational on you, but I mean, what does Gen Z think? There's a lot of muttering and the people who talk about generations in these very sort of general ways that there's this idea that Gen Z has different ideas about identity and speech and, and sort of fun and pranks on the internet than maybe the current dominant discourse does. So, you know, maybe maybe there'll be a lot of Gen Z characters quoting John Perry Barlow soon. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I don't know enough about it to say for sure, but I wouldn't discount that as a possibility. My students seem to really like the Barlow. I have to say, like, as I was saying, I got to see that, you know, like they were kind of like, they were kind of into it in a way they definitely weren't about either Zuckerberg or Valerie Solanas. You know, they kind of were like, oh, wow, yeah, we can go online and be ourselves and be whoever the hell we want to be and say it wherever we want. I think that must, that must have seemed like a real utopia to them because that's totally different than any internet they know now. So they heard that and they were like, oh, wow. I wonder if it matters at all that, you know, John Perry Barlow himself was a kind of warm and engaging and fascinating person. Uh, whereas, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> to some extent, seems like literally, you know, everything <laughs> that he produces is the kind of public relations labored effort yeah. to sort of communicate with others. It's hard to imagine. I'll just say this. It's hard to imagine Mark Zuckerberg writing Grateful Dead lyrics. Let's just leave it at that. You know, like that is a that is something I cannot I cannot imagine. You know, look, say what you want about the old Internet and lots of people have said very bad things about it and accused people like me of nostalgia for it and, and this, that, the other thing. But it was, whatever else you want to say about it, it was more fun. It was certainly more fun than whatever we've got here. I remember that when Zuckerberg published his manifesto in 2017, that uh, Zenep to compared it to Barlow's. Uh, but she pointed out that interestingly, you know, the thing that was most significant about uh, Zuckerberg's manifesto was not really what was in it, but all the things that he left out, all the things that were unsaid, um, all of the sort of things that were literally happening in the world, um, mm-hmm. even as the kind of you know reality had begun to sink in, mm-hmm. were simply unaddressed. Mm-hmm. No, that's a really good point. Um, I, I'd actually forgotten about that piece. I need to now that you mentioned, it, I need to go back and and look at it again. Zuckerberg's manifesto was written when what you know. So John Perry Barlow said, "Look." governments and corporations. You have nothing to do with the internet. We built this ourselves, get out, right? And Zuckerberg is the, you know, the most surefire manifestation that that was wrong. Zuckerberg is a creation of, you know, corporate America and government, the lack of government regulation. So he, you know, to the degree you see the lack of regulation is government action. He is the perfect mesh of government and corporate world. And yet he wrote about all of this as if what John Perry Barlow said was still true, so he he has this remarkable ability to to write as if the cyber you know the declaration of independence for cyberspace was a true description of reality when he in fact is the pure example that it's not at all you know so i mean yes that's absolutely right i mean Brown Perry Barlow could at least you know kind of log on to usenet or or whatever and still feel like what he was saying kind of seemed real to his lived experience you know zuckerberg has no he has no such excuse. I'm sure that before he died, Barlow said many things about Facebook, but I would reckon it would be the opposite of the web that he imagined, uh, certainly back in the days of the, uh, Definitely. Of the declaration. Um, Definitely. Well, let me, let me s- switch gears with you slightly. 
one of the things that's happening right now, or at least it seems to be, is that there are certain tech figures, and Elon Musk is one of them, Zuckerberg is now one of them, there are many others who have gained so much wealth and capital, I think of Mark Andreessen, that their kind of manifesto thinking, you know, they have enormous amounts of capital to wager against or to invest in making that manifesto real. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point are they kind of, you know, prosecuting their manifestos with all of that capital? Um, and, and, you know, it seems to work, right? I mean, you know, yeah. we, we've seen entire markets uh, shifted based on manifestoy language around things like the shared economy or what have you. Yeah. You know, the emergence of a manifesto, I think, is the sure sign that something's going to happen in in cap in tech capitalism. If you want a, a clue that somebody is going to be doing something somewhere, wait until the manifesto kind of comes out. Maybe they don't use the word manifesto, but when that document, I mean, look at crypto. And I should caveat this by saying, I know nothing about this. To me, crypto seems crazy. So your listeners, I know literally nothing about this topic. So, so I'm, this is to me just an example. But you know, crypto is one of the things that's the most saturated with manifesto language, right? I mean, I think there's manifesto language all over crypto. You know, and so I think with that level of disruption and that level of you know, kind of going after a particular system, it needs to be accompanied by the verbal groundwork you know, to, to sort of lay the ground verbally for big, big moves. You know what I mean? Um, it's interesting because, you know, people who believe in economics or people who were who skeptical of language would say that none of this is necessary. You don't need to have a crypto manifesto to do crypto, just do it. You know, just who cares what you have to say? But clearly these people doing this disagree for whatever reason, you know, and, and this is not a class where I, where I interview manifesto writers, but I would love somebody to do a study and talk to these people and, and ask them genuinely, like, what are you doing with this? What is, why do you feel the need to write this? And even if they're totally full of shit, what they said would still be interesting. I would love to know what, what people think they're up to when they, when they write these things. So, yeah, I think that, that if, when a manifesto appears, that's a sign that, you know, there's going to be market market movement somewhere. Is there a yeah. sense that we spend so much time or pay so much attention to these tech manifestos because it feels like the only place where we can really contest what's actually mm. going on, what the rules are for society? Yeah, it just strikes me that maybe there's some connection back to how, how broken our, our politics are in so many democracies and whether this sort of contested space of how tech will work and how it will relate to society. And crypto is a good example because you've got these socialist utopian kind of visions and individuals trying to advance that particular point of view. But then you've also got these, you know, staunch libertarian uh, or even further right kind of characters who see a very different future. I think that we live in the most discursive world I mean, I say I've ever seen, but every day it's more discursive. There's the struggle around meaning and language is real, and it takes up an immense amount of time of people who care about politics. Now, I don't know if it takes up the time of kind of your average, you know, man or woman on the American street. You know, a lot of people debate this, but, you know, people do, you know, go off all the time about woke thing. You know, people, you know, average Americans have plenty of things to say about like woke people being woke. I mean, they don't know what that means, but it seems to bother them. But we live in a world where almost all politics is linguistic. Not really, but 
it's like the iceberg has flipped. It's like the top of the iceberg is huge and it's all words. And the bottom of the iceberg is, is institutional, economic, political politics. And that's very tiny going on below the surface. And that's not the way that an iceberg should be. <laughs> you know, an iceberg should be with some talking at the top and then below the surface, there are all these institutions and, and economies and power structures that, that sort of determine the way that things are. So maybe manifestos are just part of that. You know, maybe they're part of that larger linguistic struggle that's happening right now about seemingly every every aspect of American politics, for sure. It is a 100% of the time, seven days a week, you know, 24 hours a day linguistic struggle to define terms. That's certainly not good. And that's not my idea of what politics should be. But Donald Trump is evidence that if we don't take it seriously, we sort of concede the field to the enemy. Because a lot of people looked at Trump in 2015 and they said, oh, he's just words. He's just rhetoric. He's just this postmodern man kind of trying to create reality with his bluster and his bullshit. And he did. <laughs> he did. And he does to this day. Donald Trump is nothing but discourse. He has no power other than his mediated image. I exaggerate a bit, but you know, he's like the worst nightmare of postmodernism come to life. No one, I think, would have thought it would ever really get like that. So yeah, it, it, and manifestos are part of this, are part of this struggle, I think. I'm going to ask you a, a kind of last question. One of the things that I'm interested in, particularly around tech policy and language, is the way in which certain terms uh, migrate into law um, or mm. lo- migrate into policy. Um, mm-hmm. And we're, we're seeing this now, of course, uh, very much so with people attempting to kind of think through ways to regulate artificial intelligence mm-hmm. um, or to uh, stipulate rules around platform transparency or around content moderation. And there are certain terms, I mean, artificial intelligence is itself perhaps the best example that have now been essentially codified into law. Um, yeah. And I suspect that <clears throat> if we went back in time, there might be some connection between uh, the way that industry invested in that term and the way that that we kind of think of it today, what it means, what it contains, what it doesn't. I think that's absolutely right. That's a great insight. Law is dead language. Now, lawyers wouldn't like me to say this because for them, law is a living thing, right? But law is freezing language. So it has a specific meaning that can be adjudicated in a supposedly fair way, right? Like law freezes linguistic meaning and policy sort of freezes it more, right? Like that's what policy does. I don't know enough about the relationship between policy and discourse. Like that's just not something I I know, I know enough about. I do think that these manifestos and the discourse that surrounds them do ultimately provide the metaphors by which we understand what technology is and what it can do for us, right? Is the internet a homestead? Is the internet a walled garden? Is the internet a you know information superhighway? Um, is artificial intelligence um, natural language processing? Um, is it machine learning? Is it what they meant by artificial intelligence back in the 1960s? What is it that we mean by artificial intelligence? And I think that the metaphors we use to talk about these very abstract things do eventually become part of the, the policy world. Maybe the problem is that by the time they get there, 
that discourse has already moved on. And that's a problem. John Perry Barlow was right about that for sure. You know, that, you know, cyberspace moves a lot faster than real space. Whatever else you want to say about it, that is, I think, true. And by the time that world catches up, that technology world is already at least one step, if not multiple steps ahead already. And that's a big problem. And I have no idea how we deal with that. What do you hope your students will take away from this? You know, if one of them comes back to you in five or 10 years time, uh, maybe they've gone to work for a tech firm. Um, What do you hope they'll say to you? You know, I hope that they will say that they got a sense of how politics really works, that politics is as much about rhetoric and language and speech and ideas as it is votes and voting and the legislature or the parliament or whatever. I think that to, you know, by and large, even now in the 21st century, when students, when young people hear politics, they think voting, you know, and they think what people in government does, you know, and politics is, is language. Politics is, is speech. Politics is metaphors. Politics is, is visions of how things ought to be, you know, and I hope that they'll, they'll learn to be understanding of of how politics works in that way. You know, and the other thing I hope is just that they'll learn to, they'll learn to identify bullshit when they see it and not trust it. You know, I want them to learn to be skeptical, but not cynical about the world. That's my wish for every student I've ever taught since I started teaching, be skeptical about the world, but don't be cynical about the world. And if you can manage that, you're producing good citizens. And I think that as teachers, that's what we all should be up to. Chris Anderson, thank you very much. This was great. I'm really glad we we managed to find the time to do it. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest, Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.